like Son Like Father with Antonio and Willie Harrison, a real open and honest conversation between a father and son. There ain't no love like the love of a father. Hey, Dad. Hey, son. It's been about 20 months since the last episode, and it ended a bit abruptly, and I didn't feel like it was a finished product yet, or a finished story, per se. But I knew that we had to come back around to it, and after 18 months in San Quentin, my dad is finally home. We're about a week away right now from Christmas, and he came home just before uh, Thanksgiving, or a little before my birthday in October, I believe. So got to spend Halloween, Thanksgiving, and now Christmas coming up. But my dad's home, and he is back on the microphone with me. How you doing, Dad? I'm fine. How are you, sir? Good. Uh, so I got an idea for these last couple episodes here. But what I wanted to talk about tonight was not so much what it's been like being home, how you're feeling, those type of things. But I wanted to go back a little bit to when they took you from county to San Quentin, knowing you had to finish out 18 months. Can you remember that ride, that yeah, bus ride? Definitely, I can remember that ride. So talk to me about it. Well, it, it started out, I didn't know where the hell I was going. It took about almost three months to get where I was going. Uh, I went from one place to the next. It was a layover. Uh, I was going to a certain place. But once I got there, I was there for two or three weeks, and then they moved me again. And, and they, they were never telling you where you were going to end no, up? No, no. Well, from the time I left county jail, I stopped at just about every prison on the way before I got to San Quentin. Okay. And uh, I was always put in the main population, which – made me think that I was going to be staying where I was at. But after about two or three weeks, they had called me and told me pack my stuff. You know, I'm being transferred. So I couldn't figure that out. So when you were heading to San Quentin, the actual final trip to the to that place from the last prison, did you know at that point you were going to San Quentin? No. So you didn't know until you got off the until bus? I, until I got off the bus and walked into the reception. Uh-huh. That's when I found out that's where I was going. And the first thing they asked me were, where you been? And my response was, what, what you mean, where I've be, where I been? I don't have control of anything. What the hell you mean, where I've been? Yeah. And so uh, I wasn't, I, again, put in the main population right away. No uh, reception. I just was put in the main population. Now, San Quentin is historically known as one of the most violent prisons in the California or the United States for that matter. Yeah, that was a trip. So when you found out it was San Quentin, did you have any kind of feeling about that? Well, I, yeah, I had a lot of feelings about it because my first thought was, well, what the hell am I doing here? I'd never, well, outside of Rayford and uh, Leverworth, I'm like, well, what the hell am I doing here? I thought we'd be going to a medical facility. Uh-huh. Like, I thought it would see them like CMC East. Okay. I was like a country club. And I got there, and I walked into the cell block. There was no chicken wire. It was like six stories up, but no chicken wire over the tier so people couldn't jump off or be thrown off. Oh. And I'm looking at all of this, and I'm going, oh, my God. So for the first week, I always walked with my back to the cells so, so I had room if anything happened to maneuver so I couldn't get pushed off or thrown off right. the tier. And then I started looking and paying more attention, and everybody there was hell my age or older. Really? Yeah. It, it was like 
it was old folks' home almost. Oh. Everybody there damn near had something wrong with them. Going like, well, okay. They say I was going to for a medical facility, so maybe this unit I'm in is where all the medical issues are. Okay, that's where they put all the people with medical issues. And then after I got went on the yard, everybody else was the same way. No, it was a few guys who you know was buffed and walked around and played sports and football and basketball. Even the Warriors came in and played their basketball teams, but. The majority of the guys, I would say 98% of the guys was like from 45 to 85. Oh. You know, canes, walkers, and then I got this weird feeling that, well, hell, they put me here to die. Yeah. Because after a couple of months, I found out that like 20 guys, at least 20 guys a month was dying in San Quentin. And... uh I was a little upset about that. Well, shit, I was going to say, did it, the older folks put you at ease, but not if everybody's dying. No, see, that's what it was. It, it, it was like, it gave me the sense, the feeling that I was put there because, because I was sicker than I thought I was. Yeah. And uh, I knew I had cancer and all of that, but I'm going like, well, they didn't tell me the whole story. Yeah. It's like, I got terminal cancer, so they not expecting me to live that long, so that's why I'm here. And the, with the medical issue, uh, that was another matter. Well, what do you mean? What was, what was the matter be, with the medical be, issue? Because they really didn't uh, treat you. Uh, the doctors really didn't take care of anybody. You'd go see a doctor, and they had this one particular female. She was Indian doctor there. You'd go in, and she may not even bring up what's wrong with you. She asked you, well, why are you here today? What you, what, what are you in here for? And the first time I saw it, it was like, what the hell is she talking about? What am I in here for? I go, well, like, this is my initial, initial visit, and you and my PC, my primary care doctor, I was told. So I want to talk about my conditions and what's going on. Well, what is your condition? And I told her, well, I was told that uh, I have cancer. I've been taking medication. Well, you seem to be all right to me, and, you know, she just a physical check, checking my pulse, you know, tapping, putting a hand on my stomach, tapping my stomach. Well, you feel this, it just hurt, and no, no. And that was it. That was it? Yeah, and I'm going like, what the hell is going on here? And that same doctor, I went to the hospital supposedly for surgery for my leg because I have PAD, peripheral artery disease in my leg, clogged arteries, and... When I went into the hospital, like pre-surgery, I didn't see her. I talked to a nurse. They put me under. After I went to the recovery room, I didn't see her. I saw a nurse. And so that's when I wrote home. I was telling I was telling mom about it. And I said, well, like, it's the strangest shit that happened to me because I went to surgery. I was put under by the uh, anesthesiologist. And I didn't see that doctor before. And I didn't see the doctor after. And so mom wrote letters and, was, you know, and, and uh, more than me was complaining about this lady. A lot of people wrote uh, uh, 206 on her because of the way she was. So the next time I saw her, she was all smiles. How you doing, Mr. Harrison? You know, come on in. And she was talking to me, but the medical was terrible there. You know, nobody, like all those guys there had terminal illness, most of them. Uh, no pain medication. They gave him aspirin, Tylenol, stuff like that. 
tell me what your did you did you come up with like a daily routine that you kind of stuck to? Yeah, I did. Um, so what was your daily routine? My daily routine, I'd get up and God, I was taking all all like, these off ass pills. What time uh, were you waking up? Like uh, five o'clock in the morning. Okay. And for uh, like maybe eight months, I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning, take my medication, sit and watch the news. Uh, about six thirty, we'd go to chow. We'd go eat breakfast. After breakfast, I'd come back to the dorm, finish doing my bed and things around my bunk area. They so would, were you in an actual cell or were you just I, in I a, was in a dorm. So, so this was like a bunch of bunk beds in a, a big old room? A, like a big warehouse with a bunch of bunk beds. Okay. Uh, would you have what, preferred not, to have been in a cell? Yes, because cell living was, I liked it cell living compared to the dorm living because cell living you had some privacy. Right. Especially if you had a single man cell. Yeah. But even if you had a two man cell, you still had privacy because you and your cellmate worked out a situation without even talking about it where he gave you privacy and you gave him privacy. Eventually, after a couple of weeks, you found out when he liked to be in the cell and he found out when you liked to be in the cell. And you gave each other that space. So were you in the dorm the whole time? The whole time I was in the dorm. Oh, yeah. wow. And uh, that in itself, I, yeah, you would get into that that type of living. But uh, then after that, I went on the yard to open. The yard would open. I'd go out and do push-ups and things like that. And well, when I well, no, that's wrong because when I first got there, the first 30 days, I did have, I was in a cell and I had a cell partner. Okay. And uh, he had, uh, this guy was, he had been down like maybe 15 years or something. Mm-hmm. So he had a cell full of food. He had two or three radios, headsets. He had some of everything. But just about anything you could think of, cigarettes, all that works. So he would let me use uh, one of his headsets and a little radio, and I'd put on the headset and just walk around the yard, listen to music, because I wasn't talking to too many people because – it's just like any place else you go, you first, you don't say that much. You kind of check everything out. Right. And, well, I don't want to be a part of this group over here. I see these guys doing this. I don't want to be a part of that. Uh, this guy speaks to me all the time, but watching him, I, I see shit he's doing. I don't want to do that either. Yeah. So after you be there for a few months before you start talking to people because – you pick and choose who you want to associate with. Right. And after a few months, a couple of guys that I found I wanted to talk to. And then uh, one thing they had at San Quentin was a lot of different outside groups. What do you mean? Self-help groups. Okay. Things like yeah. that. They had uh, two different colleges there, creative writing classes, speaking classes, all these different uh, type of classes, self-help classes. And uh, – I, I was a part of just about every group that was there. Which one was your favorite? Uh, the writing class was my favorite. Yeah. I remember yeah. you had sent me a couple of pieces that you wrote. Yeah. Because uh, I always have been able to write. Uh, just sit down and give me a subject and I kind of can write on it. But uh, that's how the first few eight to nine months I spent my time. So in the morning after you walked around the yard, then what, lunchtime? Then lunchtime, well, what you got when you went to breakfast, you got a sack lunch, uh-huh. you know, uh, sandwich, some cookies, maybe an apple or something, you know, 
And uh, if you wasn't getting any packages from home or food from home and stuff, and when I first got there, I wasn't getting that. And then after a few months afterwards, I was able to do that and, you know, get packages with top ramen and cookies and certain meats, all packaged stuff. Yeah. So you'd go back, I'd go back, and I'd make myself a lunch. Normally, I'd eat the sandwich out of the sack lunch they gave us at breakfast time. Okay. And the apple, and uh, maybe make me a, a top ramen soup. Have my lunch, watch TV a little while, go back on the yard, do some more push-ups, walk around. And a couple of guys I met, you know, we'd talk for maybe an hour or so. Then they'd go their way, and I'd go back in, or either we'd walk up to the line, walk up to the library on a Wednesday or Sunday, I'd go to the chapel because they had outside guests come in. Uh-huh. And like I said, every group there I, I belongs to, like certain days, maybe a Monday and a Wednesday, I think I went to two different groups, uh, NAAA, domestic violence groups, uh, they had all kinds of types of groups there. And I would go to these groups, sit in these groups, and Another reason why I went to these groups because there you found some intelligent men there. Yeah. Men who was speaking on things other than uh, what they had, you know, the money they had, the dope they sold, the women they had. I didn't want to hear all that shit. Yeah. So that's why I was in a lot of different groups and stuff. And then what time was uh, Lights Out? Lights Out was like 9 o'clock. Okay. Nine o'clock, the lights lights was out. Uh, you had the phone until eight o'clock. Yeah. Eight o'clock, you had to get off the phones. Yeah, I think we talked close to like every week or every other week, so yeah. we're able to hear from you. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back to the dorm lifestyle. Okay. So you, you were talking about how you were having a cellmate in your first 30 days and yeah. uh, being able to have some privacy and things like that. What was the dorm situation Well, like? the dorm situation is, again, again, you just picture a big warehouse, open floor, with bed spaced about three feet apart maybe. And on either side of you, or unless you was at the, the beginning of the row, and it, each dorm held about 98 to 100 men. Wow. And they had two showers, uh, one on the right side, one on the left side. If you didn't, if you wasn't working, then you got a chance to go in the shower on a pretty regular basis without waiting, putting your towels and your underwear and things and soap and stuff there, saying, calling next on the shower. Yeah. Because you had to find out who was the last person then use after that person. Still, white and blacks didn't get in the shower together. White, blacks, and Mexicans didn't get in the shower together. Mexican and white got in the shower together, but blacks had to go to the shower by themselves. The bed situation, they divided it up. At first, when I first got there, it was like one half of the dorm on one side was all white Mexican, the other half was black and others. Now, you had some white guys who was other, and you had some Mexican guys who was others. And you had a few black guys who was with the Mexican guys or the white guys. Okay. But eventually, it would be like a black guy, maybe two black guys, then a white guy, two Mexicans, then a white guy, then another black guy. So they kind of 
integrated it. Okay. And uh, like I said, you had no privacy because once you got out of the shower, you had to put lotion on your body or whatever you did after you got out of the shower. Uh, most guys dressed in the shower. They took their clothes and they dressed it. After they showered, they dressed in the shower. And some guys would walk back to their bunk, put lotion or whatever they, they put on their body. And you did that openly because, I mean, everybody was there. We had some thieves, and that's not tolerated in prison or jail. But we did have some thieves. They would run around. They would, you know, when the dorm was empty, if everybody was out or certain people was out working and other people was on the yard and it wasn't but a few people and they could sneak around and get to somebody's locker, they would, and they would take stuff. Then we had a few, very few youngsters. I see about 2% of the population was youngsters. Okay. Uh, which would create a lot of issues, fights and stuff like that. But the majority of the men there, it was like, you know, they were loud. The conversations, uh, I didn't want to hear because, like I said, it was all about nothing, uh, about uh, what they were going to do when they got out. Uh, and a lot of them guys had like, a, and most of the guys that was there had been there some time, like 10 years, 15 years. And I didn't even want to talk to them because yeah. I already knew where they was coming yeah. from. And they were still living as though they had just went in or something. I used to hear them talking. I just shake my head and go like, "You just don't know. Wait until you hit the street because it's altogether different." Yeah, the the dorm life. I'd prefer a cell life to. I prefer to sell life to the dorm life because I didn't like it at all. Now all the officers there, most of the officers there were pretty good guys. Yeah, you know. And then you had the inmates who would, on a regular basis, like fuck the police, this, that, and the other. You know, or they'd get caught doing something they'd get busted uh-huh. then it was a big hoorah about this police but my thing was it's like wait a minute that's those guards job to watch everybody in this damn dorm they know what you're doing ain't no ain't nobody got to snitch on you because i mean it's an open dorm and some of these guys been working there for 20 some years they know what they're doing they know their job yeah they can watch guys just by their behavior, you know, and eventually they know just by their behavior who's doing what and who's not. Yeah. And but it's always, oh, we got snitches in here. I, I never knew anybody to snitch on nobody. Yeah. But I used to just stand up sometimes, getting ready to go to the bathroom. I look across the dorm, and I'd see these see certain people doing certain things. I'm going like, well, damn! If I can see them, I know the guards can see them. Yeah. You know. What I picture being and you tell me if if you felt this way being the worst part of the dorm would be when lights go out yeah because again uh when the lights go out it's quiet time and that's one thing they don't tolerate is noise after the light go out you know you got two officers sitting in the center of the dorm like up front and if anyone is talking and making noise they will walk over there that's a write-up or whatever. Okay. But, you know, you, you would lay there, and that's the only private time you had because there was nowhere in prison that you could go and be by yourself. Yeah. So you was by yourself when the lights went out at night. You stared at the damn ceiling or you put your headsets on, listened to music, and just dealt with your thoughts, just dealt with you. You know, that was your alone time. Was there any theme that kept coming across your mind during that alone time dealing with you? Was there anything that you kept thinking about or staying stuck on? 
Well, you, what the biggest thing the whole while I was there, it was like, you know, this shit's got to end. This is the last time. You know, I'm, I don't want to visit this shit anymore. I'm through with this. I had said that before, but mm-hmm. here I am again. Yeah, on GP, it's like this is this has got to end. Looking back on things, it's like so many things running through my mind that you know I wanted to do, I could have done, shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know. But that's null and void because uh, I'm here now, so I got to deal with this shit and get out and go from there. And I know it's not going to be easy because. The conditions I'm under, when I get out, it's going to be the same, rehashing the same shit over and over again. So I got about three years to to get from under that unless I can go through legal challenges and get from under it and then make some changes. So uh, thinking about doing certain things, but then also realizing the fact that there's only so much I can do under the conditions I'm under. And uh, I had no idea a lot of shit happened after I got out. Uh, I had I, I had no idea about like not being able to go to my grandkids' school and you know and, and participate in things the family do certain things. I had no idea of those things, but so I, those things I didn't really think about. I just thought about well, when I get out, I can be with the kids again, and we can go do this and go do that. With your thoughts, were you more hopeful? Hopeless or angry or I was more hopeful. I was more hopeful because my anger only lasted while I was in the county jail. Why? Why? Because uh, I was there. I knew the consequences. I knew what I had to do. So uh, you just wanted to get it over. Get with. it over with. Because yeah. being angry about it was going to create more problems. For right. Me, yeah. You know, someone said said something at the wrong time, and you know, and I, I'd, I'd blow it. So I just kind of left that. Now, did you run into any problems while you were there? Any issues? Anybody, you know, step to you in any kind of way? No, uh, not really. I had a couple of guys say some stuff and, you know, it started on GP because this one guy kind of an argument started where he was arguing. I just told him, you know, you know, go fuck yourself because uh, and I can't remember what it was we were talking about. I think it was he was talking about when he get out and all the things he was doing and when he get out, what he's going to do. It. And I said something to the effect of like, you know what, man, I don't want to hear that shit, dude. Uh, you full of shit, dude. You just like everybody else saying that you had cars and money and this, that, all of that. And you were living this place, living that place. And I told myself, you was a fucking crackhead in Pomona. Cause the guy was from Pomona, and I had talked to other people that knew him, and that's what they say. That's who they say he was, you know, and that he was living with his mom and shit. And I go like, you know, I don't want to hear that shit, man. And then uh, he said something smart, and you know, well, what he said, what what nigga, we, uh, I ain't got to prove nothing to you. What I can prove to you is I, you, I'll do this and do that, you know. So I was working out doing dips. So I jumped off the dip bar, and I go. Well, nigga, we ain't got to go go nowhere. I'm here right now. And then everybody just go, oh, hold, hold it up, hold it up. No, no, no. And that just ended that. So I just walked away. That's surprising that people stopped it. Yeah. Yeah. All the stuff you see on, uh, you know, videos and people with cell phones is always people trying to get people to fight as opposed to stopping stuff. Yeah. Well, that's because I guess then, too, 
like I said, it was a lot of older cats there. Oh, uh, yeah. It was a lot of older men there. And they were saying, like, well, now hold up, you know. Uh, what y'all doing, man? That started on some bullshit, you know. And then, like, the man just told you the truth. He didn't want to hear your shit. And then, uh, you know, you're going to go there, you know. And I said, well, if you want to go there, let's take it there. No, no, y'all. So I just walked away. Mm-hmm. It took about maybe three months, and then the guy tried to he come to me and apologize, want to talk. You know, I told him, hey, you know what? Uh, you said what you had to say. I said what I had to say. We just leave that right there, bro. Yeah. You know, I ain't got no conversation for you. And now, did, did you see all kind of fights or anything, or was it just pretty calm most of the time? It was pretty calm most of the time. Uh couple of the youngsters got into some stuff. A few older dudes got a, got into some stuff. And but, most of that was about drugs. But nothing violent like you no, would see no. on TV with people uh, stabbing each other. Well, and- only two guys got stabbed. Uh, and that was a gang-related thing over drugs. Okay. Yeah. You say over drugs, so was there anything and everything in there that you could want? And from, mar- from marijuana to meth. It was more meth in there than anything else. Uh, guys were doing meth every day. Matter of fact, this guy I used to work out with, uh, we called, just call him Slim. Me and this other guy, it was three of us, we used to work out together all the time. When we first started working out, Slim, he was ready to go all the time. Me and Wayne, the other guy his name was Wayne, sometime he would come and get me and Wayne. Come on, man, it's workout time. You know, we'd go work out. But then Wayne got transferred. Soon as he got transferred, because I heard used to hear Slim get angry sometimes. Well, fuck that nigga over there. You know he was saying this, and I'm gonna get that nigga's ass. And Wayne go, hey man, just sit your ass down, man. Just leave that shit alone. And then he'd stop. But soon as Wayne left, Slim start getting into the meth thing. Oh, I guess Wayne was like his buffer or something. Yeah. Then he wanted to talk to me, and I go, you know what, dude. Uh, no oh, man, uh, you go on and do your thing, bro. I'm good. I'm good. Because I didn't want to associate with him because all the officers around there looking at him, and they know who's doing what. Like I said, right. they know who's doing what. I didn't want to be associated Yeah, because I'm trying to come home. You know. Then he got busted twice with a phone, and they took like three, four months from him. I think I told you on the phone about that, a couple of guys – was doing that and they got busted and they took time from him. And one guy was supposed to go home like next week. He got busted and he had to be there another three months. Over a cell phone? Yeah. Damn. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. All they have to do is whoever they want to call put money on the books uh, on their phone and they can just go to the telephone and call them without any hassle. But, you know, because if I got a phone and you want to use it, then I got to pay you to use that phone. Right. You know, money, cigarettes, well, not cigarettes, money, weed, meth, or something, a store. Most time it was a store. Guys would go to this, uh, would make out a list, say, okay, I'm going to charge you $20 for whatever and give you a $20 store list. And then when you go to the store, you buy them $20 worth of stuff. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the way that went. But, did, uh, did you uh, make any close friends or anybody that you kind of became fond with well this guy that used to be my best friend way back in the 80s when i first came to california lived in monrovia and duarte this guy named butch me and him was known around town as we were the two 
biggest dudes in the whole city of Monroe and Duarte. I think I remember you telling me about him, yeah. Yeah, and Butch was like bigger than I was. Butch was like, he was, well, he wasn't no bigger, but he looked at big because he was like 6'5 or something, 6'6". Okay. Six, six. It was huge. Nothing that we did, but everybody seemed to be afraid of us and stuff. We, I mean, I didn't bully nobody. I never saw him bully anybody. But anyway, he, later on, he got hooked on drugs, and he died from a harem overdose, and his brother was there in San Quentin. Did, when you saw him, did you recognize him immediately? Or no. Did he recognized you? or No, uh, he didn't recognize Somebody was talking, cause asking me, well, where you originally from? I said, well, originally I came to California and went to Monroe and DeWarty. Monroe and DeWarty, oh, really? And, you know, word got around, well, this dude, you know, he's out of Monroe and DeWarty and blah, blah, blah. And, and I brought up my family, the McGraws and stuff, and certain people knew them. And then uh, I met this guy, and his name was Clay, and he said, you from Monroe and DeWarty? I go, yeah. He go, well, who'd you know there? I said, well, my best friend was Butch. He said, Big Butch? And he showed me a picture. I said, yeah, that's my, that's my best friend right there. He said, that's my brother, man. I said, really? So me and him started talking. And there was tours in San Quentin every day. Like Out, for outside people. Visitors? Yeah. There was females walking the yard by themselves every day. What were they What were they trying to like get? It was like a zoo? Getting a glimpse of the yeah, prison I, life? I don't know what the hell. <laughs> Some of them was going to different programs and, you know, stuff like that. Talking to the inmates. And some of them was teachers, but when I first saw it, I was totally shocked. I was like, God damn, all these females walking in. They weren't no ugly or old females. I was like, all these women walking in the yard. You know, but all the guys respected them. They didn't get out the way. They say nothing out of the way to them. So, okay, okay. whatever. But this guy, he would was a tour guide Okay, for the people that came in. After I got to know him a little bit and saw what he did, I said, well, this guy's got his head on straight. I can talk to him. So when he played tennis all the time. So we started talking. Then after about six months left, they moved me to H unit. That's the short unit when you get ready to go home. They take you out of the long-term unit and put you in the short unit. Okay. So I used to go up, but you could still go to the long-term unit yard. So I used to go up there and kick it with him all the time. How long did he have? From now on. Oh, for real? Yeah, and he had been there like 20 years. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So you get moved to the short-term unit, yeah. and are you counting down the days at this point? Yeah, and that's when things really got kind of hard. Why? Be- because you know you got six months, five months left, and now you're watching everything you do because you don't want nobody to push your button. Right. So you kind of stand out of the way of everybody. So my time, days was getting longer, nights was getting longer. So I said, okay, what I'll do is to find a job. Because when I first got there, they took me off of any kind of work because of my medical condition. Mm-hmm. So I got a job being the uh, uh, janitor in, in, the, in the dorm. Getting up every morning, I'd get up every morning. I didn't have to because we'd clean up like seven thirty, eight o'clock when everybody went went to breakfast, came back. But I'd get up at five thirty and do it. So I'd get up at five thirty, clean up, mop, sweep, mop, wipe down the benches and all that stuff. And then after breakfast, just just before around about nine thirty, ten o'clock, I'd sweep again. You know, pick up any paper or trash I saw on the floor just to have something to do. Yeah. 
also was getting paid for it. Okay. Yeah. I was getting paid for it. It's like $16 a month, something like that. Knowing you were coming home mm-hmm. when it was, you know, six, five months left. Yeah. Um, were you getting anxious at all about coming home? Were you worried about, you know, what it was going to be like? Or, I mean, what were you thinking? What were you expecting? Uh, I was just, I really was thinking about mom. I was thinking about uh, things being different uh, in, in terms of our relationship and how things was when I left because our conversations and phone calls and, and the letters uh, said one thing, but in my head I was like seeing things kind of being the same. Uh-huh. That's basically what I was worried about. And well, what do you mean being the same? Uh, it, you know, the, the communication kind of being the same. Our, okay. our relationship kind of basically being the same. And I wasn't wrong about that because well, it's, it's kind of the same. This time around, I did make some changes because since I've been home, I've drank twice, I think. The day I went to the store and got that liquor. Uh-huh. Yeah. But after I drank, I went to bed. You know, I went to bed and went to sleep. You know, everything's still basically the same, man. Was there anything you were uh, really nervous about in terms of falling into this old habits or no because i knew i was through with that okay no because since i've been home uh only places i've went is places that uh it's like plays concerts those type of things so tell me about the night before the last day right well (laughs) night before the last day that's like drinking a pot of black coffee being hyped up Smoking two or three joints, you got pins and pins or needles, which eyes propped open. You can't close them because I couldn't sleep. Everything was going through my mind at that time because I couldn't wait till the next morning. And then about because you get up at five o'clock to right. leave and stuff, so I finally fell asleep about four o'clock, and then I had to jump up at five o'clock and get ready to leave there. But then after I got ready to leave, is it was like the waiting. Because we had to wait and wait and wait, you know. And then I was told, it was like, well, if, if you had to call your wife and she had to got here at 530, you could have left, you know. Mm. When we come back next time, we'll hear all about the departure and what's been happening since then. Love you, Dad. Love you, too. Thank you for listening to Like Son, Like Father on the MPD Network. For more shows and more episodes, visit Multiple Podcast Disorder Network. That's mpdnetwork.com. Or leave a comment by emailing info at mpdnetwork.com, hashtag like son, like father in the subject line. You can also visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash mpdnetwork and follow the Twitter feed at Harris Antonio.